Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall, I'm the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is the Oscar-nominated director, Bing Liu, his film Minding the Gap, one of the five documentaries, features, uh, nominated for an Oscar this year, and um, you can watch it right now on Hulu. Also, did I see some place that's coming back? It's going to be on POV at some point? Yeah, it'll be airing on POV on the 18th of February, and then there's just a bunch of, you know, theatrical re-up screenings all over the country. Yeah, especially in L.A. and New York, we were getting to see it a lot. And you you established this pretty early in the film. As a teenager, you, you made lots of skateboard videos, right? And so then you went off in your early 20s, became a filmmaker. At some point, I guess maybe in your mid 20s, what made you come back? to kind of revisit this? I mean, the film reveals a lot, but I'm wondering kind of like that start of thinking about making this as a documentary, what is the entry point? Because I have a feeling it might be a little bit different than where the film ended up. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, um, I spent a lot of time running away, I think both you know, creatively and physically when I was growing up. You know, I was taking road trips all around the country. And um, you know, when I started doing this project, I just wanted to explore stories from around the country. So I went around to, you know, communities with people that I'd met over the years in the skate community um, and spent time with them, you know, just crashing on couches and um, sort of being itinerant. But around that time, I think I was, you know, as one is in the early 20s, really um, trying to figure out what it means to grow up, to become an adult, to, you know, um, step out of this adolescence um, that, that all seemed sort of really fresh and near to you at the time. And um, of course, I had a really brutal, what I felt like a brutal fractured childhood that I just never really got a chance to figure out um, while I was living through it. So I had a lot of conversations um, more and more, especially as I entered my 20s, about, um, you know, just like how other people experience their their growth and their adolescence and their relationships with their families. Um, and I, I had been filming skate videos, you know, all throughout. It was always just a sort of side project passion of mine um you know and the and there's a whole genre of this stuff where people like you know just make these independent videos on their own and you know press them on dvds have a premiere sell them online um and it's like you know every community sort of has that crew that does that at the time at least it was you know a, a lot more prominent i think nowadays it's a lot more focused were, around smartphones and you, you were know the chicago spike jones if you will <laughs> I, I, I certainly, you know, watched Spike Jones movies and skate videos when I was a teenager and it was a big influence. I mean, you know, some of these Spike Jones skate videos are just so out there, you know, like they would have skits where there's just, you know, these skateboarders who in perspective were miniatures and like running away from giant mice, you know, and uh, he had, you know, he was bringing in these Hollywood sort of special effects budget sort of uh, sets where they like have skate spots explode while skateboarders are skating over them. It's just gags like that. But, you know, I, I found myself experimenting a lot as I was growing up. But anyway, um, as I was traveling around the country in my 20s, I just you know, I had a lot of these conversations and I just wanted to start recording them. Um, and so I just sat people down that I found were interesting and uh, open to talking about things on camera. So then you, you obviously settle in on three subjects, one of them being your, yourself to a certain degree. You, that wasn't something that you had necessarily latched onto. That, no, that. I was totally just using other people as a proxy to explore these things that I wanted to explore and engage with. Um, and, you know, I, I went back to Rockford after a year um, of just, you know, doing this project and 
that's when I met Kier and I the first time we sat down and interviewed I just like knew that he was a younger version of myself when I was his age um, and then I quickly met uh, are you that much older than him I'm eight years older than him. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I didn't know him growing up. He knew who I was, but... It kind of plays like the three of you know each other. It totally, yeah, and I didn't realize, like, I, like, to, you know, in the first act, it sort of sets... I was thinking more of, like, setting me up as this skate filmer who, you know, filmed things in Rockford, but I wasn't, like, best friends with Zach and Kier. They just, you know, were... They, they watched my skate videos, and they were part of that community. Um, so it's, I think it's really interesting that people are really finding it, you know, as this sort of stand-by-me story where we, like, were close friends. Up. You know, I was just rewatching part of it this morning, and in the first 15 minutes or so, it's this wonderful kind of look at um, getting it, it, why people are drawn to skateboarding in this idea of of becoming a man and kind of the stress involved in that. Something kind of like universal of being like 21. Um, is that to a certain degree, and it works as a wonderful opening for your film, but is that closer to maybe? the spirit of the film that you were trying to make is something about that? Because, I mean, ultimately where this goes, and I hope, I assume at this point, you know, this film's been out for a year, where it ends up going is, is domestic abuse and, and the three of your stories. But I'm wondering how much, you know, kind of the lens that you're looking at it, how much of that 15 minutes is a little bit of, like, the spirit at which you were kind of trying to capture in the beginning? Yeah, um, you know, I certainly, I think a lot of documentaries just start with a question. My question was, again, how, how do I grow up? Um, how do I become the best version of myself? If I, if I didn't have that example at home that I could model myself after. Um, so I was, I was very much like this existential wandering soul, I think. And that's how I approached it. Um, I just, I didn't want to repeat the same pattern. I was so scared of becoming my stepfather. Um, so I was driven by that fear and also this yearning to try to find an answer elsewhere. Um, and so that's why I ended up trying to do with the people I was following. Yeah. My sense in watching this thing was that you had no intention of being in this thing in terms of, I mean, maybe, as you said, maybe as like the filmer, the, skate, the skateboard video filmer, but that, that one can even sense in like around that minute 45 when, you, <laughs> when the camera turns on you, you're uncomfortable. Not only was this not intentional, but a certain discomfort with, with having become a subject in it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I wasn't as uncomfortable with becoming a subject. It was more like, you know, how do I fit myself in the film in a way that makes it you know, feel earned? Um, it was a very late decision. I mean, the film ends with Kier, one of the main characters, moving out of Rockford. And it wasn't until, you know, a year later when I interviewed my mom, which is the anchor scene that really... I think um, is the backbone of my, my story in the film. Um, I mean, for a long time, it was just a current day verite documentary about Kier and Zach, you know. And I, the reason why I went into archival is because we had tried voiceover and cards on screen just to try to set up who I was. Um, and the reason why I even tried entering the film in the first place was people just kept suggesting it once they found out how close I was to this community, to, to these themes, you know, to these people. Um, and it just didn't, you know, like the voiceover in cars just didn't feel right. Uh, and I think, you know, having, and then, the, so eventually I was led into just searching in my old archival tapes, you know, from when I was a teenager, trying to find like selfie moments or things that spoke to me growing up, you know, in a way that felt a little bit more experiential rather than just me telling you like, I was from Rockford and, you know, um, and so yeah, and, and then, you know, when I, I was just trying 
just different ways to do to, to indirectly you know let you experience me as the filmmaker so I was just trying to experiment with you know like interviewing my brother and my mom and the skate shop owner um, but the the you know uncom- the discomfort that I think people sense in that mom interview was uh, was a result of working with Josh Altman my editor he like before I met him I tried cutting that scene in ways that you know I felt made sense but in reality it was just exposition it was like you know I'm just letting my mom be the mouthpiece to tell the audience talking head to fill in the back yeah exactly and and it was like a two-hour interview and there was a very small percentage of it that felt like a confrontation and I I, I, that was a blind spot to me I like didn't see that but Josh saw it (laughs) and Josh saw it right away and his first pass of of that scene when he took took it over it was Kind of what you see in the film even just the way you have the camera on yourself and we're looking through the gear it, it has a certain i don't know how conscious that choice was if that was just the camera angle that you could get but even just that element of um like, like having all this equipment be a shield to, yeah, to protect just kind of, myself yeah it, it, there's something there's a lot of choices in terms of how you film things uh you know i, I look a lot of um Zach has got that three quarters overhead or behind the shoulder, and, and he's Steve, kind of. Steve loves that. He talks about that all the time. He's like, he's, yeah, he just loves the fact that he can't even look at me. Yeah. Um, when I was just thinking about like, you know, like this, it's backlit. This is the best lighting angle. You get to see the skyline. Zach gets to, you know, look at something else because he has trouble talking about these things. And I think. Whereas Kier is very. Yeah, Kier is very much like. Squared up to the camera. Squared up to the camera. Yeah, very earnest. Was there a point, though, you're talking about working with your editor, and you mentioned Steve James, so I know at some point Carter McClendon came on board and obviously probably a big help in trying to figure some of these things out, but was there a point at which domestic abuse becomes the subject that you're realizing I'm making a film that at the end of the day is going to be about, about that? Yeah, I mean, part of the big struggle is I had, had to learn how to put story above issue, um, and that was a struggle all the way to the end. But, you know, part of the, that ensemble film that I was doing in that first year um, included a lot of conversations about seeing parents fight, seeing parents, you know, enact acts of violence on, on each other and, and the person I was filming with. Um, so it was sort of like part of the ether of what it meant to grow up without having these positive examples at home. Because, yeah, I mean, you have this thing I wrote it down this morning. Um, you know, when you're showing your you know, 15 and 17 year old selves filming. It's like, you know, I think Zach says formed a family to look out for one another when no one else was. And there's a sense that that, of course, is going to end up. Why isn't someone looking, you know, that idea of someone not looking out for you at home? Yeah. One imagines inevitably if you're looking at that issue, you're going to get to the that core that's at three of yours backstories. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, part of the document, I mean, everyone knows the documentary, most people know that the documentary process, the storytelling process happens in the edit. Um, so I was, you know, both writing and getting material to write, so to speak, um, just over the years along the way, you know, just cut scenes and I would just, you know, string things together. And I had so many interviews to work with. Um, so by the time that last year rolls around, I start working with Josh it was just a lot of reverse engineering, you know. It was about, like, setting... We knew what we were building up towards. We had an insane amount of emotional material. Uh, we had story arcs. It was just like, okay, this is the second half. This is, like, where we're building towards with Kier, with Nina, with Zach, with, you know, 
me. Um, and so the first half of the film was just trying to very slyly give you breadcrumbs, you know. So a, a, a bite like, you know, we all sort of came together as a family. It's just a, top, just a ball up in the air, you know, to land later, you know, on all these issues of domestic violence that pop up. Um, but, you know, it, it, it really was about just letting the story, learning how to, to let the story lead. I don't think domestic violence would have become as big of a theme in the film if Nina hadn't told me that Zach was being abusive. Okay. Right? I, you brought, I was going to save this to the end because I didn't know what we were. But yeah. There's an amazing scene in this um, that I assume unfolded the way that you filmed it. You're in the car with the two of them. In one sense is that we're seeing in real time you kind of discovering the secular nature of domestic violence with, with Zach and Nina. And one, one sense isn't just watching it, the dilemma that you had as a filmmaker of, A, this isn't where you were going, but what do you do now that you're one of your subjects looks to be repeating the pattern of his father? I think that that scene wouldn't have been in the film if I wouldn't have decided to put skin in the game. You know, I mean, like that's that's really the pivotal. That's that's really where my character, the filmmaker, sort of has his first goal, right? I think the first half of the film, the filmmaker is just you know someone you're getting to know, um, and everybody else has their goals that are set up, you know, at, at the beginning. But like that's really the moment where it's like, okay, like now you're expecting a confrontation to happen. You're expecting the filmmaker to go deeper, and you know, like you're going to go on this journey with the filmmaker. Um, but yeah, that was that. I just, you know, at the time it was like, oh my God, like Zach and Nina are gonna get gonna get back together. I have a very short window to try to like capture their emotional states now, as they're sort of split up and you know this big um, moving out thing had happened between the two of them, and so I was in and, and like it was hard. Like I was just doing it this all on the side. You know, I was driving to Rockford whenever I had a free moment. So. Um, I was like, you're, I don't, you're essentially working crew in Chicago. Yeah, I was working crew in Chicago, and it was just like whenever I got a, a free moment, I would drive out to Rockford. Um, like, like when it, like when Kier moved out to Denver, he like texted me while while I was on set. I was working in Sense Eight, and he was like, "I'm gonna move out tomorrow." I was like, "Oh my god!" Um, so, <laughs> so I was like looking. I was like, I almost like found, like was trying to find. Uh, Adderall from someone on the on the crew because I was like I, I have to like we're gonna wrap at like two in the morning I'm gonna have to drive out to Rockford and like wait outside his house and it was gonna be crazy but and that's why I did and was able to capture that scene but anyway I I just didn't know when I would be able to have access to Nina again so I was just like that's I don't I didn't do it to try to create this tension of like oh Zach's out of the car it was just like well if Nina gets back together with him like the next time I see her like I'm gonna miss this window I have to ask her now like how she feels about this so was there an element though of not knowing how to handle that. Yeah, there's no, there was no guidepost. I mean, I tried watching other films about domestic violence, but it just, there was no, you know, it, it just, I couldn't find a lot of examples of like, it's like, like dealing with active, you know, like two people that you're following or in their relationships are becoming really volatile. Um, I found a little bit of it in Prodigal Sons, uh, which is, uh, uh, what's her name's first film? Kimberly Reed's first film. I found a little bit of it in October Country, Michael Palmieri and Donald Mosher's film, but nothing that really, you know. And I took a 40-hour domestic violence course, you know, that helped me at least get context into how about how to move about 
safely for you know both both people involved. Like a course designed for a family member or for a course designed for advocates. Mm -hmm. If you want to like volunteer to help out, you know, survivors or help out in the legal system. Um, so it's just sort of a crash course in you know like what is domestic violence? What is the cycle of it? You know, how does it manifest itself? How does the larger system of our society sort of reinforce the problems that keep domestic violence you know perpetuating? Um, so I mean, those are those are like the things that I was trying to grasp on. And of course, I would you know talk to producers and other filmmakers who you know, had dealt with very ethically um, difficult situations in their films. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had to just figure it out as I went along. Someone, I can't remember who, someone part of the Carter McQuinn family posted something not that long ago. And using you as an example, I, I, there must have been some deadline for Sundance or grants or something like that. And, and had talked about how for years your project went as one that was not supported by the nonprofit community. Um, and you kept going and you were kind of just this one person band as you're describing yourself. At what point did your project start registering on people's radar and you did start getting some of, you know, Steve James is a mentor to this project, as is the whole Carterman Quinn team. At what point are you a little bit less by yourself with this and you're, you're, you're having some of that advising and some of that help? I mean, I, I, I had never seen Hoop Dreams. I knew nothing about documentary when I, was, when I first applied for a fellowship with this, an early form of this project. Um, in 2014 with Cartem Quinn. Um, I went through a six month sort of you know, crash course with them, started watching a ton of docs, um, started you know, getting to know the staff members there, Tim, Justine at the time, Gordon Quinn. Um, and you know, they, they came to me at the end of that year and by 2015 I'd become a co-production with them. Um, and at the time I like, didn't know what that meant. But uh, in hindsight, I knew that meant, I know now that that meant, you know, mentorship, guidance, you know, like being, having access to Gordon and the staff for feedback screenings. Um, and in 2015, I was also able to go to Tribeca All Access, which is, you know, these speed dating sort of pitch session, you know, events. Um, and that was like my first time getting, in, it was like my first point of contact with this larger, you know, um, documentary ecology uh, that I feel like um, it was good for me. It was it was terrifying. It was good. I wrote this. I like wrote this long blog post about how like alien I felt. How like you know scary that was. Um, how like weird it is too to just like sit down for ten minutes and just like try to you know bear bear your soul and your project to to what I saw at the time as these scary gatekeepers. Um, I think that was the first time. And then I think as time went along, I just kept. I did get some fellowships. I got the Film Independent Fellowship and this Garrett, the Garrett Scott Development Grant. Um, I was just like meeting, you know, more and more doc people. Uh, by the end of 2016, PBS came on board, POV and ITVS, and they were really, you know, what allowed us to make the film. Um, I don't know, it was such a whirlwind because I met Steve initially when Justine, who was, at, who was the ED of Kurt Temkin at the time, she recommended me for his docu-series, America to Me. Mm -hmm. And so I, Which you did a couple episodes, right? Well, I followed three stories, mm -hmm. so that's we broke it up by sort of like stories, oh, okay, and we like it, shared yeah. responsibility sometimes. Um, so I followed Grant, Jada, and Charles, who ended up you know becoming pretty prominent in the series. But you know, I, I just I just got to know him by you know working alongside of him and you know seeing how he leads the team, which is a great way to get to know Steve. Uh, 
Yeah, and then I think just the the ball just kept rolling. I mean, this this film is just so hard to like talk about. Even like even now, I'm like I find it hard to like tell people like what it is. I think uh, it's just a word of mouth sort of film, and that's and it's still I think that that's still how the film is getting seen is really word of mouth. You know, we're we're at Sundance right now, and this is where your film got unveiled 12 months ago, and in that time, it has found that audience, and now you're an Oscar nominee. And you know, I had this conversation. I wish I had it on on recording, it was an off recording thing, but there is this aspect of the fact that you've probably been talking about your film nonstop for, <laughs> for five months. But you know, there's another part of it, which is, and you know, I, it's a conversation I'd had with Nancy Ford last year, which is when you are a character and your life is on the camera and you've been talking about it. I mean, these are rich man problems to have. You're an <laughs> Academy right. Award nominee and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm gonna have to be careful about my complaints here. Yeah, but, but, I'm, but, but I'm wondering though, it is a drain. You know, Ann Thompson's here. She knows how much of a drain <laughs> 12 months, uh, the, the, this that. five month process. Is it a little bit, this aspect that you do put yourself on camera, that, that your childhood and your domestic abuse experience is there? Is, is there something to this fact of, of living with this film and putting it out there for so long that is, is both a blessing but is also an, an extra burden? Uh, not that I can notice right now, maybe in like five years from now, I'll be like, am I still having to talk about this? Like, <laughs> uh, no, it feels, it feels nice to have this film be, you know, resonating in a way that's, you know, reaches beyond the critics, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess what I mean is like the messages are still flowing in from like that 14 year old kid from Arkansas who is like, oh my God, like you this film spoke to me. Mm-hmm. I haven't cried for years. You know, I haven't talked with my dad for years. Um, and that feels nice. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the, like having to talk about my story isn't as prominent. I mean, just, just cause I feel like my, my story in the film is just very much limited to, you know, my interview with my mom and, you know, like me making this film. Um, I don't know. One thing I love about this film is, mm, there's an aspect of what skateboarding means as a metaphor to to these characters' lives. And the way that you use skateboarding is this almost like a musical thing, like this expression of what's going on. There's that wonderful sequence early in the film where that sense of the freedom that you all feel from doing this. And then there's the, the sequences where, you know, in particular, I'm thinking of the archive footage of Kier, you know, and and seeing him destroy that skateboard and or, or later take out his anger in the skateboarding. And the filmmaking is really tremendous because not only are you very skilled in your many years of, of filming this, but also a sense of how the movement relates to to the emotional state of these characters and the way different ways that skateboarding has is a release for all the different emotions. I think it's really hard to in any sort of storytelling to let people experience rather than to tell them, you know? Um, when we were first working with, with the archival, which was very late in the game, it was like a few months before Picture Lock, when I was, we were like building this archival to, you know, set up Kier and Zach and myself. Um, there's a lot more bites. Because they must have supplied their, their own. Kier and Kier's friend actually supplied, like I found like, I was just like looking on YouTube for, you know, people who had filmed them you know, that it was sort of like an era after I left to move to Chicago. Um, there's a lot of it, and there was, you know, primarily two main filmers that filmed it all, and so I was, they were kind enough to just, you know, lend me the material. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, there were a lot more sound bites to set those things up. Um, and I think even in earlier versions of the film that I'd cut, there were a lot more sound bites to set up what skateboarding meant. Um, so, it, you know, it was sort of like a back and forth of trusting the audience and learning how the material speaks to the audience to just let the material speak for itself. Uh, and there is a lot of emotion in it. I think it's just so rare to see young men express emotions or, you know, in a way that's really palpable. Um, so, and like here, one of the whole time I was filming with him, there was no sense of anger or rage at all. So when I, when I got, you know, this big hard drive of footage of him as a kid, and I saw that clip, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like this, like it's, it's, it, was, it was hard to believe, like here getting this angry, but it was a real insight into his character and, you know, like what he was going through at the time with his father and um, just, and maybe just the, the normal adolescent rage that can build up because of whatever factors. He's an unreal character. I mean, he seems like an incredible human being, but just his openness on camera is, is something that is very rare in, in the way that it's expressed. And then the fact that you have those archives. I mean, you made an incredible film, but he, there's an element of just what an incredible gift he is as a human being in, in terms of that film, too. He's so special. I mean, he, when we showed him the film, um, it was right before we picture luck, he, it was like he was an emotional mirror. He laughed every time he laughed mm -hmm. on screen, and he cried every time he cried on screen. And I was sitting on the couch with him, and he was so... Um, he was laughing so hard and crying so hard that I could feel the couch shake. It was really, really visceral for him. And that's just how he is. He wears his heart in his sleeve. But at the time, I think especially early on, he was really uncomfortable. Like he had to sort of hedge against that mm -hmm. whenever he was with his friends. Um, but deep down, he just, you know, he had all these emotions and he wanted to express them. And he played music and he like wrote a lot. And um, it's really great seeing him sort of like grow into himself and become more comfortable with that over the you years. You see that in the course of your movie too. Yeah, and like even like just now, he's so, he's such a, you know, he's he's so just, he's just very comfortable with himself. And it's, you know, I'm like, I feel like I'm getting proud, like I'm a big brother or something. But I really, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to see him grow. There's a choice in his story that I found really interesting, which was um, how the race aspect of this. And it's, it's, it's a tough choice because, I mean, it's, it's clearly a, a component of who he is. He's one of the only African-Americans hanging out with these uh, white skaters. But there's also this thing where it's like you open up that can when, when your, your film is becoming a little bit more about, you know, home life and, and, and growing up. And it, it, if, I, if you had told me beforehand, I said, I don't know if you can open up that can of worms in the middle of this. But you found a way of doing that. It was really subtle and beautiful that didn't seem that almost was just like a little detour and like an enrichment of that character. I have to imagine that's a tough, those are, there's, for that, there's probably about 15 of those little examples that are hard to imagine, like what you can put in and what you can't put in. I have to imagine that's part mm -hmm. of the process, right? Yeah, that was the last thing that was figured out. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of putting story above issue. Um, part of the reason why I wanted to just ask him to interview when I, you know, all those years ago was, I, you know, he was this black skateboarder in this group of white friends in a very white subculture. And the other black skateboarders I talked to around the country, they talked about, you know, not really being able to fit in on both sides, you know, like being called white boy and um, getting beat up, beat up by other black friends of theirs or former friends um, when they started skating, but also feeling a little bit on the outside, you know, with their white skate friends. And Kiera felt like was, you know, so I, I, we talked about it our first time and we kept talking about it, 
but it was very much like this stilted sort of conversation that just felt like we're just talking about an issue, right? Like, what does what does it mean to be a black skateboarder, you know? Um, and then during rough cut screenings, there'd invariably be a, a hand in the room that shot up that said, I think you should take race out of this. This is too distracting. You can't fit it in here. There's all these other things you're trying to tackle. Um, but, it's, you know, I, I just kept trying. I, I felt like it was it was just too important. And I think people, you know, like we live in 29th, we, we, you know, it's people are going to be asking that in their head the whole time. It's like, what is, you know, like, how does that play in his life? How does that play out in his life? What does he think about this? Uh, and so those verite scenes helped, right? Like there's very telling verite scenes that just sort of speak to all that. Um, we just need a little bit of setup for that. And finally, it was like, no, it was the last shoot I did. It was November 2017, right before, like we already found out we got into Sundance. So November 2017 and you premiered here <clears throat> January, January 2019, 2018. Yeah, or 2018. Yeah. So it was like two months before the premiere. Um, you know, the film was really working, we felt like. Um, and I realized like, you know, Kier's journey is about moving out of Rockford and it's about coming to terms in his own way with his dad. And he has talked about what is, you know, in a verite scene, what is, the, and he's told me in person, you know, a couple of things about his dad, you know, teaching him these lessons about what it means to be black and growing up. And so I called him up and I was like, hey, what else did your dad tell you about this? And he just had all these things to say. And I, it was one of those like moments where I'm just like, I almost beat my head up against the wall. I was like, why didn't I realize this earlier? Like, this is what it's about. It's a tie it to a story, not to, you know, put the issue first. So I, I bought a plane Putting ticket. Putting it in his dad's voice about what he Yeah, told yeah, it's, him, a, it's more about his dad's lessons, you mm -hmm. know, rather than just like, what do you think about being black and growing up? You know, the LA uh, film critics gave you a best, uh, you and Josh, a best uh, editing award, and it really is deserved, because I, as I went through it today and just went through these beats, like, it's, it's really amazing how you structured the story and it unfolds in this way. Um, it's very clear that as a teenager, you became very agile and good at filming these things, and you probably had your own little techniques for doing it, and it seems almost more of like a smoothness, athletic aspect. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the in-between years of you know, your development as a filmmaker, and then what you brought to that when you returned as a you know, you're working on, on films, as a filmmaker to how you filmed, um, in specific, the, the skateboarding. Because uh, right, you were working in the you were you were working, working in the camera, camera department. department. For, I mean, I started working as a grip when I was nineteen. This guy took me under his wing. He was you know this loader second AC who had worked in all these big Chicago productions like Public Enemies and Spider Man and whatnot. He had moved to Rockford actually to buy a house to start a family just to you know have a lower cost of living. And at the time, he was trying to start his own lighting, shooting, you know, commercial company. So he bought this three-ton grip truck with all these old ratty C-stands and Mo Richardsons. And he had been doing this work for like a year. I found out about him and how he needed an assistant of some sort. I cold called him after getting his business card. And he was like, what are you doing tonight? And I was like 18 at the time. And I went over and it was like the day the taxes, the day before taxes were due, and he had like hadn't slept for three days, looked like a mess. He was like, "Go edit that car commercial," and I just like drank Red Bull and like edited this car commercial overnight. And the next day, he was sat me down. He's like, "Look, when I was your age, he didn't, you know, he didn't go to college. He just sort of like went and started working after high school." 
he was like, look, when I was your age, I, you know, I did all this free work and I was just like trying to break in the industry. I just wanted to get paid and I want to help you out, man. Like I want, you know, like you're not, you're not going to get paid always, but you know, I'm going to teach you all the skills you're going to need to make it in this, in, in this industry. And those people are hard to come by. The people that can, you know, like take you under their wing like that. But that's how I sort of came up. And he told me, don't ever go to film school. You don't need it. So I went to school for literature, you know, and it was like, which was really enriching as well. Um, but when I was a teenager, I went on forums, like these community forums to like, you know, that of, of mostly skate videographers and photographers. It was like this national sort of thing. But there was a large contingent of them were like film school students or working professionals. And so, you know, that was my film school. Um, and then when I started working with this guy, Tom Secura, who took me under his wing, you know, like I was able to sort of, you know, put those skills to use. So when I'm getting coffee or, or starting to learn how to be a camera assistant, you know, I'm, I'm sort of caught up in this film school sort of way of like knowing why, you know, like asking for this lens or why they're putting that light over there, or like flagging that wall over there. Uh, and then, I don't know, I mean, I, I wanted to become a DP. That's what I thought my path was going to be. I thought I was going to work my way up the camera department and become sort of camera rapper and DP. Uh, you have a clear eye and a natural skill with it beyond whatever training you've got. But I mean, I mean, there's things like that. That sequence about 10 minutes in where it's open Chicago. I mean, that is some incredible filming. That's one of my favorite sequences of all years. Just that freedom of moving through Chicago and that movement. And even just your sense of the frame is... is, is of Rockford, moving through Rockford? I'm sorry, is it yeah. Rockford? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm from New England and New York. It's all fucking Chicago. It's all, yeah. it's all just... It's the, all, I've been to Chicago. Everything right, right. looks like a suburb, yeah. so I apologize. Yes, Rockford. Um, but no, but I mean, there's that sense of... Um, Are you talking I, about the movement, like, of them moving through the streets of Rockford, yeah. like skateboarding? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it is just knowing skateboarding and how they move, but part of it is just framing, you know, and, like... Uh, being able to sort of think visually about how to keep people framed and, you know, like trying to see their faces, being at eye level, you know, trying to change up the shot, like while also keeping the change up in between the change up interesting to look at too. I mean, those are things I learned from Tom, things I learned from working with Steadicam operators, you know? How did you do it? How you're moving as well, and I, I assume for almost all of this, you're a one-man band, right? Yeah. So how are you... Because you are able to pay attention to the framing, you are able to do this, but you're also to get a movement. What, what are you using? What are you doing to, to, to be able to move with them, but also have that agility with the frame? So it, I used a glide cam, which is um, pretty much a poor man's version of a steady cam. Uh, no, no gimbal or, gyro, or no, no gyroscopes or electronics or anything. It's all you know, based off of the physics of uh, having a, a rig with a gimbal that is you know, butter smooth with dozens and dozens of ball bearings in it um, and letting 99.9% .9 of the weight fall in one hand which is what keeps it steady and your other hand just with the tips of your fingers are you're able to tilt pan yaw the frame and that's it you know like you just you trust you, you just like get get um, your body and your muscle memory comfortable enough with just like that sort of ratio of 99.9% .9 of your weight of the rig and one arm and the other one just you know just very gently controls the framing and then once you get that down then you have to learn how to either run or skate behind people or in front of people and the more you know like i just got so comfortable with it where i just trusted my feet i was just looking at the frame you know just looking at the frame and uh you know like predicting 
where they're headed uh, and trying to, you know, like do things that, I mean, I'd been filming on a, like growing up, I'd been filming riding a skateboard with a fisheye for so long. Uh, so I was just doing everything I could to, you know, take advantage of the things I couldn't do um, when I was growing up, just filming by falling behind on a fisheye. Um, it was really exciting, you know, so I learned how to run backwards looking back. You know, I, 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 as much as I could, I would like do these swooping moves um, to change up the frame. Um, what about the verte scenes? Um, obviously, you want, I'm thinking in particular of Zach, you, you, you know, you want an element of him you capture their movement and the way their characters are expressed in movement so naturally but at the same time some beautiful images here was there an element of hey can we do it this way you know can we can we, <laughs> can we flip you this way is there an element of hey let's hang out late afternoon if we're doing outside instead of noon was there is there an element or uh, you know of of because this film is very handsome, is there an element of you, the DP, that's also trying to like steer Verte towards, towards frames and moments and lighting that, that is more appealing? I'd say more for on-the-fly interviews. Um, you know, there were, yeah, there were a lot of moments where I'm just like, okay, I know this is a beautiful spot. Let's, you know, I'll, I'll drive you guys over here to, to do this. Um, but for actual Verte scenes, which are supposed to play out like scenes, I didn't really have much control, you know, it's like, I would, like, my thing was just coming to Rockford and finding these guys. Zach didn't have a phone for many years while we were making this. Kier was a teenager who just never, he was just really bad at getting back to me, so, you know, my, my... I'm thinking about this. These two must have been a complete pain. Oh my God, it was so annoying. It, my typical thing was just coming to Rockford, going to Zach's house, you Is know. this like a 45 minutes outside the city? It's an hour and a half. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, okay. it was a big commitment to go out there and like try to find these guys. And sometimes I just couldn't even find them. So it was like I would just go back to Chicago empty-handed with having shot nothing. Um, or, you know, I mean, usually... I mean, those are the moments, actually, I think, where those billboard shots and, you know, other creative shots that filled in the gaps came through, it was those days I couldn't find them. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, some of the m more intense verite scenes, they just sort of unfolded the way that they did, and I used my knowledge of, you know, how fiction, scripted TV shows and movies covered scenes to, you know, just make sure I got the coverage. Like Zach and Nina getting into a verbal argument. Uh, <laughs> that was out of left field, you know, I mean, it was crazy. Um, yeah, that you probably don't yeah. say, hey, can we open the window? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. But, like, yeah, all the interviews. And, the, the, I, you know, like, every project I've ever worked on in the non-scripted non space has been like this. You know, for interviews, you just try to control as much as you can. Um, now, what about, just lastly, I imagine this is also something where they become partners in this, and you have, you have to tell the truth, but you also want to feel clean with your subjects, your mom, Zach, Kira, I have this feeling he, he would have loved anything he did. <laughs> but is there is there an element like, you know, it's this time last year, you're about to unveil this to the world. I mean, you didn't know it was going to become an Oscar-nominated film and, and, and go as far as it will, but nonetheless, you're revealing this to the film. Is that a process kind of late in 2017 as you're finishing this up of how to share this with the people in your lives and the, and the people that are on this film because you, you want to feel clean about... I can imagine showing Zach this movie is a stressful thing for you. Yeah, it was. I mean... I think it would have been more stressful if I wouldn't have told them really early on that we were going to show them, you know, a late version of the That's film. That's the key is you were, you, you the wanted... Key, yeah, the key was, you know, like, hey, look, no matter what we do, they're going to get a chance to see this. So it's not like we're going to get it totally wrong. Like, they're going to actually, you know, 
um, we're going to have some sort of dialogue around it. That was probably, you know, um, I mean, along the way, like, especially once I realized I was going to become a part of the film, that's when I started purposefully, you know, asking them things that I was thinking about possibly using. <laughs> like that moment with like me and Nina in the car, I'm asking her how to move forward to, you know, um, talk to Zach about what happened. At that point, I hadn't thought of using that. I was just like filming it to film it. Um, but when I told Kier in the porch that, you know, like I saw my story in yours, when I, you know, was asking Zach, like, do you, th how do you think like your decisions are affect are going to affect your child? Um, those are moments where I was like, you know, this, like, I'm, I'm self-conscious at that point. Uh, but like, those are also moments where it was, it served as a sort of a check-in for them. You know, like we were getting meta in a way that would allow me without getting too, you know, um, uh, without crossing too many boundaries in my head. I think it was a way for me to like get a sense of how they felt about this process and being in this film up until that point. And so that helped too, like ensure in my head that they like nothing was like terribly wrong. They weren't like super concerned. Um, I think the only person that was really concerned was, and she wasn't that concerned. It was just in relative to Kieran Zach was Nina. You know, she had we kept in communication in text and on the phone about just you know how these things were going to be handled, uh, how certain things were going to be handled in the film. And I, you know, she she told me a couple things that she really was uncomfortable with and. That was good to know while I was editing. And then when we showed her the film, she was the only one that wanted anything changed. And it was just that, that cell phone recording of that fight. She wanted it shortened by a little bit. And we talked and we decided, yeah, that makes sense. We don't need it to be that long. I interrupted you before. You were talking about the fact that you had kind of seen yourself on the path of working your way up through the camera department to become a cinematographer. You are now a Oscar-nominated uh, filmmaker. So, he keeps saying that, and it keeps like saying, like he's making me cringe every time you say that. Okay, well, you're a successful nonfiction <laughs> filmmaker, um, who who showed a lot of uh, camera ability and framing. I mean, what, what, where do you? I don't know if you specifically have a project that you're thinking about next, but I'm more interested in how you see yourself as a filmmaker next, and both in terms of fiction, nonfiction, working behind the camera, you know, or or, or one the, the way you handled story. Are we are we are you thinking about scripted narrative stuff? All of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going into posts on a film that I, which is how I met Josh Altman on. In 2017, there's this project that came to me about these gun violence reduction programs in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I explored it in a short and went out to LA and the company found me an editor and it was Josh. And so we, it was my first time working with an outside, with an editor that wasn't just me. And we clicked really well and that's how I, you know, that's how I came to ask him to be on Mind in the Gap. That has since turned into a feature film. We're finishing up shooting this spring and going into post. Um, and then because of Mind in the Gap, and last summer there's a company that approached me about wanting to do a feature-length documentary about um, millennial love and intimacy, sort of a snapshot of it. So I wrote a treatment and we decided to move forward. So that's getting off the ground as well. And then I have a few um, scripted projects in development that um, I'm really excited about for different reasons. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I'm, I'm young. Don't I, rush me. Uh, yeah, don't <laughs> rush me. Don't rush me, bro. Uh, no, it's, you know, I'm, I'm excited to, to just learn more and to, there's, there's, just, there's a lot of stories, I think, um, that come from a personal place that I really still want to tell. Um, 
So I'm excited about that. The thing that you're wrapping up, I, I worked with a group in Crown Heights that did this. These are people that go into the neighborhoods and are actively trying to, and Steve did a film with the interrupters. These types of groups trying to, to tackle violence inside a specific neighborhood. This one's a little different. It's, I mean, Steve's film, The Interrupters, was about, and I think what you're describing in Crown Heights um, is about sort of the, like these neighborhood like violence interruption uh, workers who go out and like actively try to, you know, like, stop. Yeah, I think it was SOS was their acronym or something. Like that. Yeah. Yes. The one in Chicago is Ceasefire. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the, this one, so that that's sort of focused on, you know, treating the symptoms in a way. I think these programs are a little bit more focused on like a more holistic treating the causes. Um, so essentially they're bringing young men in who are identified as, you know, most likely to be involved in gun violence mm-hmm. um, or just like living in neighborhoods or whatever. Uh, and they're paying them to learn a trade. So, you know, there's a job training aspect. And then while they're doing that, they're challenging these guys to confront the past in order to move forward and to really look at, you know, like, how their how their emotions affect their actions, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's a little bit more uh, you know amorphous in terms of just like how the, the impact is going to play out, mm-hmm. but so it's it's you know it's intimate character driven you know we're we're looking at um, you know these young men in their lives both in and outside the program as they come of age in six to nine months. Uh, you know we're at Sundance right now. Uh, last year, Minding the Gap was a film that someone like myself was trying to tell everybody they needed to see. Is there anything uh, that you've seen here that you're, you're telling people you you, you got you make sure you don't miss one or two of these films? Uh, I have a few. Um, if, you, if you don't want to, do. just real quick. I mean, Miss Miss Purple made me ugly cry for 45 minutes straight, and like I you know I loved Gook, and it was really great to see this follow up. Um, you know, American Factory is a masterpiece. Hail Satan is amazing. The one documentary that really blew me away that, you know, really felt like, okay, this is like a Sundance film discovery, like sort of film that I think is just going to get seen by word of mouth. It's, it's a, it's a film about uh, this, um, magician who in the eighties was, uh, you know, like responsible for making magic cool again or whatever. And then a few years ago, he came out and said, you know, he has this terminal illness. He's going to go on one last tour. So that it's a, so this documentary filmmaker starts following him on his tour. And then shortly after starting to follow him, he discovers there's another film crew that's following this magician. And it's, a, and it's about him sort of engaging with this other film crew. Uh, and, like, it just gets really meta. And that's, like, one of 17 twists that happen in this, you know, 90-minute film. And it's the just, amazing, it, the amazing, and it's Jonathan. called the untitled amazing Jonathan <laughs> documentary. And it's you know it it what I like about it is that it's it's sort of a you know it's a tongue in cheek critique of what we do as documentary filmmakers and you know how documentaries are constructed, and it's just so deliciously well done. Yeah, yeah. it really is. It's a it's a really really entertaining film. And it really does. It kind of also deals with this kind of oversaturation moment in nonfiction. Oh my God! Yeah, I know. It's like it's, it's, it's it deals with so much stuff about the documentary, you know, ecology, and it's just so humorously done. It's just like fun, so funny, but funny because it's like so true. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Bing, thank you for your time. Uh, and now is a great time if you have not seen Minding the Gap. It's still on Hulu. It's coming to POV. And if you're in one of these cities where it's coming back. Uh, during uh, nomination season. You should definitely see it on the big screen. It's, it's a wonderful piece of filmmaking. Congratulations. Oh, also, before I let you go, I never do this on this. 
The music for this podcast is by Nathan Halpern, who was one of the two composers on Big's film. And I never give Nathan credit enough for giving us some music from one of his other documentaries. Thank you.